Are you in a position where you have the luxury of going after a platform? So if you do, then there is a great opportunity to apply synergy of prior programs to your current program. Hey, smart scientists. Welcome to another episode on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Are you looking for strategies to facilitate a smooth transition from the lab into a large-scale facility? Then you're in for a treat today, because I'm having a conversation with Neil Templeton, who is the Director in Upstream Process Development at Solid Biosciences. These insights will enable you to develop a clear roadmap for a successful journey from the lab to the large-scale facility. These are Neil Templeton's opinions and not his company's. Are you juggling the complexities of CMC development while trying to enjoy the beauty of biotech? Have you ever wondered if there's a way to simplify bioprocessing? Welcome to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast, where we're diving headfirst into the very challenges you face. We're breaking it down demystifying the jargon and giving you the keys to unlock your full potential. I'm your host, David Brolman, and I get it. With 15 plus years in the biotech industry, I face the same challenges you do. There's a way to simplify and streamline so you can remove complexity, you can skip trials and errors, deliver without delay your groundbreaking therapy to clinics at market, and still enjoy every single step. Do you want to learn how industry experts and I did it? Grab a cup of coffee and your favorite notebook and pen. Now is the time to take your bioprocessing game to the next level. Let's smarten up biotech. Welcome, Neil. It's great to have you on the show today. Hey, David. Great to be here. Absolutely. Neil, share something that you believe about bioprocess development that most people disagree with. It's a good question. I guess one thing that came to mind for me was the need to test scale-up parameters. And when do you do it? I am very much in the camp, David, where if you do not test what is the feature that's going to break your process, if you've got a shear sensitive culture and you know it and you wait until the end and you start going to larger scale reactors and then all of a sudden you're finding that you're not performing as you did as bench scale, you're kind of in a panic. So I am always a proponent of testing that up front and trading off some of your optimization time for ensuring that you're going to be able to scale up successfully. That approach has served me well through my career, but I know that there is disagreement on that approach. There are some that think that, well, you can just apply fundamentals of engineering and you choose your scale parameter like power per volume, and then you just scale that up. But the reality is, as you and I know, it's not always that simple. Yeah. Smart biotech scientists, this is great advice. Test as much as you can early on. We're going to get much more into detail about scale-up, about tech transfers and process development. Before we do that, Neil, tell us how you got started in biotech and how did you arrive where you are right now? Sure. I guess a little personal background. I think 
I was always interested in biology and I always had interest in engineering, the creation of of useful things. And I think it was in 2006, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and it was a challenging personal time, but I guess I learned fairly quickly that it was appropriate for her to be taking her septin, a monoclonal antibody. And I was curious about this and I looked into the process for making it. And from that point forward, I realized it was a chance to apply my skills to make something worthwhile, I thought. And I appreciated the complexity and elegance of it. I was very curious about this. What is bioprocessing? How do you make it? How do you do it consistently? And it felt like a great place for me to focus my career. So that's how I got started knowing very little about the existence of bioprocess, frankly. But that is what tuned my interest towards this line of work. And maybe I'd add from that point forward, I became interested in understanding some of the elements that influence, well, what is the cost of production, as we commonly call the cost of goods. That we'll get into it a little later, I'm sure. But eventually that led me to gene therapy where cost of production are, are still very high. So that was an exciting space for me to be because the bioprocessing industry around gene therapy, by comparison to that of something like biologics, which is actually where I started my career, is much more immature. And it was a much more exciting place to focus. Wow. I love that. It looks like it's a mixture of curiosity and purpose and obviously your skills. And that's a great place to be at, right? Where those three things intersect. Absolutely. It's been a rewarding career, I suppose, so far. One with surprises and diversity and opportunity. Yeah. And looking forward, Neil, what do you believe are the trends and innovations that will shape bio? process development manufacturing you mentioned gene therapy there are other things out there what are the key innovations you think that will shape our future i think that on the innovation front i am a believer of our progression beyond what is simply identifying a product on the basis of an endpoint where you say here are my critical quality attributes my cqas and they're really all based around an endpoint. I see the desire to represent a process more in a continuous fashion, getting information from all of the process analytical technologies that are available and applying those to, I guess, inform critical quality attributes. I see that shift from, again, endpoints to more of a spectrum being one of those key innovations that are looking increasingly possible from my point of view, something that I think can capture perhaps heterogeneity in ways that endpoints cannot. I think that may actually come into play for patient safety, things that our current approach cannot quite capture. So, You've been in the industry for a long time already. So what are the key challenges that biotech scientists and engineers often face when transitioning from R&D to GMP production? Well, I'll first qualify my experience. I don't know if I've been in the industry that long, but I've been in the industry long enough to see perhaps what it has going and maybe some of the shortcomings. And I've also benefited from working on fairly different modalities, going from monoclonal antibodies to live viruses. 
I suppose, both experience there in vaccines as well as gene therapy. But when I think about the question of challenges, I guess I'm going to harken back to the point that I made earlier where working in some of the scale-up concerns and valuation up front, even in a time when others are doing strictly optimization, in spite of the fact that I worked at different departments and different companies, I've yet to be somewhere where the interest of the company is not to compress timelines and to try to move as quickly as is possible so that you're often trying to trade off some of the optimization and de-risking of your process to simply get to clinic a little faster. So I guess I'd say that's Maybe that is, in, in essence, the, the greatest problem, which may not be unique to this industry, and that's time. Because often you can put together what you want to do, you know what you want to do, but you're also trying to balance other business priorities, trying to do as much as you can to understand your process and develop your process before you reach the process lock stage is often a real challenge. And how do you go about prioritizing your experiment time, knowing that you're up against the clock? That's maybe the greatest challenge. Now, we know that there are big challenges, but what are strategies and we can apply to make this as smooth as possible? Obviously, yes, there are challenges, there are surprises, yet we can prepare for that, right? So what would you advise someone who is now just in front of a process development and scale up, what should they do? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is, are you in a position where you have the luxury of going after a platform? So if you do, then there is a great opportunity to apply synergy of buyer programs to your current program. I'd say in the biologic world, this is very realistic. Depending on what it is in the vaccine world, it may or may not be realistic, and in some cases, completely unrealistic. And in gene therapy, it's a little too immature to tell, but I'm hopeful that we are going to find ourselves heading in the direction of platformable approaches. So that's one. Do you have the opportunity to focus on the platform? And in many cases, you may or may not have that choice. You may not have that luxury. And in that situation, once it's clear, That is the time that's being given to you by your management. You're not going to be able to go after a platform. You now need to go after this program. I am absolutely in favor of using design of experiment or DOE approaches as opposed to one factor at a time or that strategy has served me well and I believe it will serve the audience of our viewership here well. It's something that allows you to explore more variables and assess really what is sensitive in less time to start to understand the design space in a way that would not be possible with a OFAT approach in the same period of time. So that's maybe one key thing I'd point to for trying to make the best of the time you have available and the strategy I would use. So what I'm hearing, Neil, is that scientists should invest a lot of time and effort into gaining process understanding, into understanding what's going on, what are the critical process parameters, how does the process react when we change this or the other parameter, so that when you're scaling up and you do see any issues that you know how to react and what to change. I would say yes, that is my perspective, but I also want to recognize there's something maybe a little 
hypocritical about what you and I are saying, and that is process understanding is something that we all want, and there is no substitute for having a real theoretical understanding of what makes your process tick. But to go about it in this way, it's something that often requires time, which may or may not be something that you have the luxury to go after. Maybe one other tool that I'll, I'll point to that served me well is fine to do, I guess what I'd call, what I call basically meta-analyses where you design experiments and you have controls and you have criteria that you are evaluating, hopefully in some orchestrated and strategic way. But no matter who you are, you're always going to find yourself in a situation where you wonder, well, what if we had tested this? How would that have impacted my process? And so on the meta-analysis front, I definitely have benefited from using multivariate statistic approaches, looking at a holistic picture of, well, how have your batches performed over the past year when the controls are not consistent? What can you glean from that information? I find that has been invaluable for informing process understanding. And again, we're trying to make something more out of what is limited time. So I find that approach to also be useful. Yeah, that's excellent because we know that time is critical because we are now in a time where many people go after the same targets. So speed is a critical factor. And yet we need to understand our process. So now my question is, Neil, obviously there is a fine line between speed and quality and understanding. And at certain points, we have to make decisions. Is there a way to do this informed? And also at what stage should we make these major decisions and how should we go about it? So when it comes to making the decisions, which are we maybe for the, the purpose of, of clarity, are we thinking like the process lock circumstance, David? Yeah, for instance, the process lock. Let's take this as an example. Well, I would then say you're ultimately in a position where you know that at this date, you're expected to have process lock. So what strategy do you use to make sure you have the best process by process lock? I would be asking myself, well, I cannot always create the most optimized process within a given time frame because I know inherently that time frame is just insufficiently long. So I ask questions that maybe reach across my organization, reach across process development. I talk to someone that is in, let's say, a regulatory space and identify, well, we have these impurities that we're seeing early on. What's your perspective on this? Is this something that we're worried about? I reach to someone that is maybe more in a clinical space and say, well, I have these assays that I can run. Perhaps this is a potency metric, but it's an in vitro potency metric. What is the overall objective that you would like to see for this product when you think about it from a product profile perspective? So it isn't always as easy as simply saying, well, we're just going to take the process that gives us the highest yield and the greatest robustness, though I think that's critical to consider if you want to go after some of these cost of goods concerns that we've mentioned earlier. But it's equally critical to understand what members outside of process development think and wish for this given program. 
Yeah, that's something I would encourage anyone listening to do because often you can get in a little bit of a silo situation and simply focus on the concerns that really matter to you in process development and forget that when you get to the stage of an IND, the CMC section is just one small part of it. So I guess I'd share that, uh, try to collect a little bit more balanced perspective on what you want this program to be and hit outside of process development to better understand what that is. That's such a good point, Neil. Thank you for bringing this up because this is my experience as well. It's so important to get out of the silo and to talk to other people. Yeah, just understanding what are the needs of the different people. It's not only about the process. There there are other aspects as well. So I want to ask you another question, Neil, because you have done some metabolite analysis also in your career. And I would be very interested in knowing what are your thoughts about that? How can we use this metabolic lens to better understand processes? Yeah, I'll be frank and say the lens that I use is directly informed by that, which I guess I was trained when I was exploring my PhD. I did 13C metabolic flux analysis. That kind of directly informs how I view any given process. I guess the first thing I'd say, well, where are we in the stage? If we're in the late stage, I see that tool that I mentioned, 13C metabolic flux analysis. That's maybe the one of the few cases that I can say you have real application for that specific tool because 13C metabolic flux analysis requires a lot of time. It's an expense, I suppose. But if you are in the later stages of your platform and you're trying to optimize your existing platform, an approach like that may be very useful to you. But then you might say, well, wait a minute, that's great, but I don't have a mature platform. In fact, I don't really have a platform at all. I'm trying to create that. How can I use a metabolic lens to inform my approach? I would say there are very useful correlations that you can draw from literature that come from looking at, well, what is the correlation of specific productivity and the ratio of your lactate production to glucose production? Because I can't always, depending on what the program is, depending on the modality, you don't always know what your yield is going to be. Often that's something that you submit and have to wait for the analytical time to get a value returned to you. So knowing simple strategies like lactate consumption occurring during the production window tends to bode well for overall specific productivity exploring the ratio of lactate consumption to glucose and seeing how, okay, a high ratio of lactate consumed versus glucose consumed, that also tends to correlate with higher specific productivity. And likewise, I might say, don't forget that when it comes to growth, which is for most batch processes, bed batch processes, a key phase, what represents a high yielding process, that metabolic state is not necessarily going to be the same. So high lactate production often correlates with high growth rates. And for the purpose of getting to a stationary-like phase, where often you can really start to increase your specific productivity per cell, that also is something that is useful to consider as you're trying to develop your process. So I guess ultimately, I like the metabolic lens because we have a finite number of measurements that we can take as process development engineers. 
in the middle of a batch, but you often can, many companies have things available to them like a CDEX or a YSI or a Nova Biomedical Flex or Flex2, the list goes on, where you can actually be assessing these things in the middle of your process. I see it useful for the optimization, which is what I've been speaking to primarily so far, but I also see it being very useful for robustness. If you see similar consumption rates of glucose from one batch to the next, often that can be useful in controlling for factors that are hard to get perfect. You might say your inoculation VCD is X, but you know that it's going to be based upon your assay. Maybe it varies 10, 20% at inoculation, and that's going to lead to some inconsistencies within your process. So to help manage that and understanding, well, do I have a robust process? Am I likely to be performing consistently? I often find simple metabolitis calculations like glucose and lactate fluxes, things like this. I might throw in ammonia as another very useful one can be invaluable for the purpose of evaluating is my process performing consistent. Remember the tighter that you measure at the end, while that's important to probably everyone that's in process development, it is a end point byproduct. It's very useful to see how what's going on across the entire life of the batch will inform that. And metabolism is hypersensitive. So it is something that can be very useful to see, well, I change the available dissolved oxygen, I change the pH, what kind of impact did that have? Often metabolism will be one of your first indicators that speaks to, well, did this have an overall impact? So that's my reason for using that lens. Hey, smart biotech scientists. This is it for today's discussion with Neil Templeton, who is a director in process development at Solid Biosciences. In part two, we are continuing our discussion on process development and scale-up. And in particular, we're going to zoom out and look at all the different modalities and different areas. And we're going to be asking the question, how can we drive down costs in the gene therapy space? All right, smart scientists. That's all for today on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Thank you for tuning in and joining us on your journey to bioprocess mastery. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, we can empower more scientists like you. For additional bioprocessing tips, visit us at smartbiotechscientist.com. Stay tuned for more inspiring biotech insights in our next episode. Until then, let's continue to smarten up biotech.